0: Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, and we are delighted to be joined today by George Landreth. George is the president and CEO of Frontiers of Freedom. He is a well-respected and prolific author on national security issues, and it is terrific to have him on the show today. George, welcome. Thanks for being with us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: So the intersection of American maritime and U.S. national homeland and economic security interests is a topic of great interest to our listeners, and I think it's particularly relevant at this time of renewed great power competition, especially with China. Um, Today we'd like to talk with you about the nexus of American maritime and American security with a special focus on China's maritime ambitions and their implications for U.S. policy
1: well, it's an important topic. So I'm glad it's of interest because it's important that we be focused on important topics. And that's a good sign for your listenership.
0: Absolutely. So let's start with the Jones Act, which, as you well know, is the foundational law of American maritime that requires cargo moving between U.S. ports to move in vessels that are owned, built, and crewed by Americans. Just simply put, why is that important?
1: Well, the interesting thing is When it was passed, I think the primary focus was to make sure that America was prepared. It was passed in 1920 after the First World War, and they wanted to be sure that we were not quite as unprepared for future conflicts. And so what they wanted to make sure was that we could build ships and repair ships. That was their primary focus, probably also to make sure we had trained mariners as well. Um, I don't know they worried about terrorism at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I also don't know if that border security was an issue at that time. And I doubt they were worried about China at that time. But the reality is, it does all the things they intended it to do, but it actually gives us all the other benefits that I think they didn't foresee, but turned out. And uh, I think that's what makes the Jones Act so very, very important, is that on a number of different levels, it serves America's interest very strongly.
0: That's terrific. What do you say to critics who say, well, yeah, but it would really be good for the U.S. economy to open our domestic shipping and shipbuilding markets to foreign interests?
1: Well, I've I heard that argument a million times, and what I've noticed is, for example, the GAO did a, a major study determining was the Jones Act responsible for driving up shipping costs in the United States. They could not find that in their research. They did an exhaustive study of it all. And then at Frontiers of Freedom, we did our own study. A little more informal, but basically we just came up with a, 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 a list of consumer goods that the average consumer might purchase. You know, everything from food items to soap and shampoo and toilet paper. And then we essentially went shopping in those places that people claim the Jones Act drives prices up. Things like Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. And then we compared that to the price of places like... Jacksonville, Houston, and what we found was there wasn't even a penny's worth of difference in the prices we were finding and being asked to pay, and then the other thing I think people have to recognize is the only way you can argue it will cut costs is when you do these comparisons that don't actually have any validity, meaning they'll take a, a shipping route from you know, one country to another country. And then they will extrapolate how much it weighed and how many miles it was and then assume you get the exact same results within the United States. But we have different regulatory regimes, we have different taxing regimes, and if you're going to do business in America, you actually have to live by American law. You know, For example, Toyota builds cars here. They don't get to put a wall around their their, their factory and not follow American labor law and American safety standards and so forth. They have to follow those. And that. So the point is, once you make all these other foreign countries follow our rules to operate in our ports and in our country, I suspect what you're going to see is about the same price. You know, because there is actually quite a bit of competition in the United States. It's not as if there's only one or two providers. There is very steeped competition, and that keeps prices low. And it also improves innovation.
0: Absolutely, really interesting stuff in that apples to apples comparison that you did versus the apples to oranges comparisons that we sometimes hear from Gen Z critics. Right. Important point. Coming back to the security side for a minute. Sometimes we hear folks say, well, you know, we've already got foreign ships in U.S. ports because they carry so much of the U.S. import and export trade. So what is really the problem? What really would be the problem from a security standpoint of having foreign vessels in U.S. domestic commerce? What's your take on that?
1: Well, I think it's a matter of focus. So for example, right now our Homeland Security Department has most of its resources located at our, if you will, our outer rim of our of our ports, mm-hmm. those, those international ports. And they're there to make sure that there's not terrorism being I- imported, that weapons and other things that we don't want, uh, you know, flooding our streets. Uh, I- for that matter, even just personnel, you know, are, are they, because yeah. these ships are huge ships, so they could have hundreds of people on them that they could just kind of bleed out into our, if, if we just let them sail around. But yeah. at a port, there's a lot of resources. The question then is, Would you want to put that same level of resource along 25,000 miles of inland waterway? Can we afford that? Because right now, these ships can't just pull up anywhere on our exterior along the ocean. They actually have to go to a port. And so we know where they're going, and and when they show up, we have the resources to police the situation and, and make sure that it's safe and that we're okay with what's happening and that it's commerce, not some sort of sneak attack. And you wouldn't have that same capacity once you kind of let them in. It's kind of like if there's someone walking down the sidewalk in, your, in front of your house. They don't pose a real risk to you until they get inside your house. And then you'd really like to know why they're there and who they are and what they're up to. But if they're just walking down the street, you probably just kind of go, yeah, I don't care. And so that's part of the, I think, the analogy here. And I think what people have to understand, I think the Chinese spy balloon situation should make it very clear. China is very happy to subsidize, because everything's run by the government, and everything is essentially an operation within the government's plan and their Belt and Road Initiative and all these other things. So they'd be very happy to pay American farmers to transport their grain up and down the Mississippi for the right to be there 24/7 365 and to have all kinds of spy equipment and maybe even uh, weapons and you know to, to launch an EMP attack or who knows what the point is it makes no sense could you imagine during world war II saying hey let's let the um, you know the, the german nazi party uh, bid on providing transportation services within the united states it's like um, I think I remember hearing that they had U-boats that would sometimes, you know, put people ashore, saboteurs ashore, uh, on our eastern seaboard. And why would you want to invite them in? You know, and and, and the idea that uh, China is any less of a threat than Germany is actually pretty ridiculous. One, China has nuclear weapons. Two, they have a very large economy, so they could take on the world for an extended period of time. Uh, they're a far more formidable foe than Russia ever was, because Russia had nuclear weapons, but never actually had a strong economy. So they were not able to engage in a long-term war to defeat America, because our economy was so much stronger than theirs, whereas we have a much closer to parity with China. And as a result, that could be a real slugfest.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. That is a lot. That is just a lot to unpack, but it's really sobering. Let's let's stay on China for a minute. You've obviously, you know, an incredible amount of that. You've written an incredible amount of that about that, both in Frontiers of Freedom reports and also in a a host of national publications. What is China trying to do in the maritime domain? Can you just kind of elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners, and then draw the connection of why that should be of concern to absolutely.
1: So in the United States, we don't really see shipping as a military exercise. We understand that the military may need to ship things, but you know we see it as just an economic activity. China doesn't see it that way. They see everything in terms of how it can advantage them in a conflict. We saw that, for example, during the pandemic, when American authorities were asking about what happened in the Wuhan lab and you know what the information was. There was a ship filled with Things that turns out probably didn't matter that much, but we thought they did at the time. Mm-hmm. Things like masks and other things that were we'd already paid for. And they were in transit. They turned that ship around and said, we don't like what you're saying, so we're not going to keep the contract. So that gives you an idea how the government is in charge of everything. And their Belt and Road Initiative is very much designed, if you look at on a, on a world map of what they're doing, they're creating choke points. And it's not because they want to be the world's preeminent shipper they want to be able to choke the world put them in a chokehold if so if, if this were a, an MMA mixed martial arts fight <laughs> they want to make people tap out they want to get you in a headlock and force you to tap out because they'd rather not fight you and still win now they, I'm not saying they won't fight you I'm just saying they're very shrewd in how they're using shipping In America, we've never really seen shipping that way. An example, when we were in charge of the internet, we didn't use the internet to punish our adversaries and reward our friends. Uh, We just administered the internet. All comers could be there. That's not how China works. And so we ought not assume that, and I think that's one of the things that makes me nervous is this is not an, I'm not, you know, I have friends who are of Chinese descent. There's nothing wrong with Chinese people. But their regime is a totalitarian regime that kills millions of people every year. And so why we would want to give them the benefit of the doubt or assume that they have good intentions is very troubling to me. I think they've made it very clear they do not have good intentions. Ask the Uyghurs.
0: So you've got this intention to dominate or create choke points, as you've said, and you've also got just a tremendous scope and scale of Chinese economic investment in shipping, in shipbuilding subsidies, can you give our listeners a sense for the magnitude that we're talking about here and sort of what, you know, what that means for the U.S. if we were somehow to try to let that into our uh, domestic commerce? How could you compete against that?
1: Well, we couldn't because they're literally producing Uh, you know more than a I think it's more than a thousand ships a year uh, if I recall correctly and and we're literally just a handful every year and that's not necessarily a bad thing we could do more if we needed to but we're happy as you mentioned earlier to let a lot of the international commerce go on international ships we only require that within the U.S. from U.S. port to U.S. port that they be American ships and while you know our our navy has the, the greatest ships on the planet Um, The reality is we don't have to be producing the most ships to be a successful, strong, vibrant economy and so forth. I think we could probably do more, but I'm, but my point is the Jones Act does what it needs to do, which is make sure that our military has the capacity and the the shipbuilding and ship repairing capacity, and then it shuts off the 25,000 miles of inland waterways to our adversaries and makes it so that they can't pretend to be there for commercial reasons and then using our openness against us. And I think that we have enough adversaries in the world that this system works well for us. It protects us, and it would be a mistake to try to change it on the theory, as I said, not not fact, but Mm -hmm. a theory that somehow we'd save some money somewhere. The beauty of the Jones Act is basically it lets the United States military almost like just call an Uber. Mm -hmm. They don't have to make the payment on the car. They don't have to own the car, they don't have to maintain the car. All they do is when they need a ride, they pay the freight for that ride. And so it's very taxpayer friendly in that respect too. And so anyhow, I just, I I think there's not a good rationale for dismissing it because the benefits are not just national pride It's not about, oh well, we want to make sure we've got a few of our own ships out there. It's actually a very practical issue. Do you want to have a a nation that can defend itself? Do you want a military that has the capacity to build and repair ships? Do you want your homeland to be free from influences like the Communist Party of China that has it out for us? I mean, this isn't me just being pessimistic. I'm just taking them at their word. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. All you got to do is take them at their word. They're not hiding it. They're not acting like, hey, we want to be friends. Why do you keep thinking we're your enemy? It's like, no. You've, you keep telling us you're our enemy, and you behave you're like you're our enemy. And if, if we get caught off guard, that's, that's our problem. That means we're stupid.
0: Not paying attention. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, should the U.S. consider more strategic investments in shipping and shipbuilding like China, like some of our allies do.
1: I think that there's a lot of different things that we sometimes do to hamstring our own industries, and then we act like, well, we're not very good at competing. It's like, well, actually, um, you know, let's, let's look at how we, what we send to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Do we send people to the Olympics wearing concrete boots to run uh, and jump and, and hurdle in, in the track events? I don't think so. And, and th- but that's often what we do to our own industries. And so, we ought to look through our regulatory regime and ask ourselves, which of the regulations are actually needed and helpful, and which ones just create burdens? You know, which of them are effectively just kind of these heavy, clunky shoes that slow our industry down and make it harder? And I think that would be, I'd want to see us go in that direction. And I'm a big believer, I, I've been on some really amazing ships as they're being built. And very innovative. And so I don't think that our we're not disadvantaged because Americans aren't good at building things. That's not the issue. But I do think sometimes we've allowed government essentially to kind of step on the throat and and make them struggle for breath. And we ought to not do that. So that's what I'd like to see happen. But that's just me, because I'm I'm a little skeptical of, of subsidies. Um, and I feel like oftentimes they become counterproductive. They might help an industry get started, but I don't know if they help it remain vibrant. And so you know, maybe you know, there could be some modulation there, but, but bottom line is uh, if you, it doesn't matter what industry you look at. Uh, our strength as a nation is innovation and doing things that other people don't think of. And I, I'd like to keep that.
0: Absolutely. Here here. Hey, coming back to security for a minute. So, CBP Customs and Border Protection officials have likened the Jones Act to kind of a virtual wall that mm-hmm. keeps oh, yeah. foreign vessels from inundating our domestic waterways. Talk a little bit, you know, kind of coming back to your side walking by on the sidewalk versus going into the house analogy. Yeah. What would be the impact on federal agencies like CBP, like the U.S. Coast Guard, if they oh, yeah. had to police foreign vessels running rampant throughout our inland waterways?
1: Well, they would. I, I don't know exactly how much they have to expand, but it would be more than double or triple, because right now, an example, our southern border, um, you know, is con- perceived as a big problem right now, pretty porous, yeah. and it's about two thousand miles. Imagine making your border over 25,000 miles. It'd actually be more than that because every river has two sides to it. Right. So it'd be 50,000 miles of, of front frontline space you have to defend. Whereas right now, they can focus all their attention on uh, you know, a handful of ports in the East Coast, a yeah. hand, handful of ports in, the West, ports in the West Coast. And so as a result, a, a relatively modest investment can be made i'm not saying i don't want to pay for it out of my pocket but you know what i mean yeah. they can do that if you then said oh by the way you're now going to have to defend 50,000 miles of rivers on both sides everywhere i i bet you that's more than 10 times that you'd have to grow the government to, to handle that and i'm thinking to myself that's that's a problem and, and and also even if you it would be a mistake to assume that if you increase the border borders that much that you could really defend it well the example would be if you if you live on a quarter acre lot it might be fairly easy to keep trespassers off if you own 6000 acres it's a lot harder to keep trespassers off your property because there's so many different access points mm-hmm. and and so i that's what we would effectively be doing is making it so to be really easy whereas right now it's pretty hard, we, and that's a good thing. From a, from a national security perspective, from a homeland security perspective, this is really an optimal situation, and there'd be no reason to get rid of it.
0: Here, here, George, what should we be paying, looking ahead a little bit, or kind of around the corner, what should we be paying more attention to than we are when it comes to the intersection between maritime policy and U.S. national security?
1: Well, I think we'll probably have to continue to make investments to make sure that our ports are safe, because I think the risk is increasing. The good news is that is a relatively small universe of a problem. You know, like I said, it's that quarter acre lot Mm -hmm. that you have to defend as opposed to a 6,000 acre lot. Um, But I think we have to be mindful to not be reactive. And what I mean by that is we have often throughout our history had bad things happen and then did something about it. So I'd like to see us as a government be careful and that they plan ahead and make sure that we don't get caught in a situation where we read the paper and go, oh yeah, I guess we shouldn't have done that. So I would argue that we need to be innovative and make sure that we're employing technologies at our ports and on our perimeter to defend our nation. And I think we, I mentioned earlier an EMP, for example, and that would be a a very... um, cost-effective way for an enemy to do great harm to our country.
0: George, for anybody who doesn't know that acronym, oh yeah, sorry. EMP.
1: Yeah, EMP is an electromagnetic pulse uh, weapon, and the, it, could be a, it doesn't have to be nuclear. It could be a, just a, a large TNT bomb in the atmosphere, but it could be a small nuclear device up in the atmosphere, so it wouldn't actually kill a lot of people directly. Um, it would just, but what it would do is destroy all technology that has any chip in it at all. Whether it's your phone, your car, the gasoline pumps, the, the grid, everything would come to a grinding halt. And they estimate that it could take us years to replace all of that because it would be so massive in terms of what actually happened. So imagine a country, imagine a big city where nothing works. So I think that those are the kinds of things that have to be aware of and understand and defend against not wait for them to happen. Because we used to be able to wait, because these oceans were, they, they were a very large barrier between us and our enemies throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. Not as true anymore. Yeah. And so we really have to be proactive, and I would argue the Jones Act is an important part of that, but I would also argue that our we have to keep one step ahead of the bad guys in our ports. Absolutely.
0: Welcome to American Maritime Voices, your place to be heard. As part of American Maritime, you are critical to moving and securing our country. And now you can help tell the story of maritime and be part of key decisions that affect it. American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. It's free to become a voice, and we'll keep you informed of what's happening in Washington so you can help change the course of issues that matter most to you. As a voice, you'll get monthly updates, have access to podcasts and videos, and receive action alerts when your voice is needed most. The future of Maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media, by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. George, this has been fantastic. Anything else before we wrap up that we haven't got a chance to talk about or that you want to put a little finer point on?
1: Well, I think that maybe the only other thing I would say is um, sometimes you get this crazy coverage that suggests the Jones Act disadvantages places like Puerto Rico. I remember being in Puerto Rico, touring um, the port there, and one of the crane operators told me a very funny story. And it was right after a major hurricane had hit. And it was just, you know, I guess five, six, I forget which one it was, but, but anyhow, bottom line is um, Geraldo Rivera was there, and he was, had his cameraman pan out on the horizon the day after the hurricane and there's all these ships off on the horizon clearly waiting to come in and he of course then told all his viewers that this was because the Jones Act didn't allow these foreign vessels to come in. That was all false. It was misinformation and it turns out they were all Jones Act ships. That What they were waiting on was the the port to be repaired because the damage that had been done to the port was so significant that they couldn't unload the ships yet. And so the ships were waiting. And they had been pre positioned, basically hiding kind of behind a neighboring island close by with all these emergency supplies, knowing that they would be needed. And that's why they were there the next morning, was because the Jones Act ships that supposedly disadvantaged them were actually Johnny on the spot and waiting. And so I think this is one of the things that happens. And of course, Geraldo never did a retraction, never corrected himself, but that's what a crane operator, a guy in the port, in Puerto Rico. So he he was going, yeah, that was so stupid, I couldn't believe it. And I think that's one thing we have to understand is that you're going to get a lot of bad reporting on the Jones Act because for some reason people have been conditioned to believe that somehow it's harmful to Puerto Rico or something like that. It's not.
0: You know, George, before we wrap up, that's just triggered for me. Sometimes we get those concerns from people on the conservative end of the political spectrum who see the Jones Act as something that is uh, somehow incompatible with conservative philosophy. I don't buy that from a security standpoint or an economic one. You've been eloquent on this topic. Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Absolutely. Well, one, I'm a big fan of Adam Smith, the author of Wealth of Nations and often considered the father of free market economics. Interestingly enough, in his book, his seminal work, The Wealth of Nations, in which he outlines why free markets are so important, he outlined and defended the British Navigation Act, which was their version of the Jones Act. And he pointed out why it was important for a nation to have a viable shipbuilding, ship repairing industry, and that it was compatible with the concepts behind a free market. And so I I think it's important. I'm a big fan of the free market, so I'm not going to poo them in any way, shape, or form. But it's a means to an end. It's not the end. And uh, we have courts, we have all kinds of, we have stoplights, you know, those are regulations. But if you time them properly and place them properly, they increase the flow of traffic and the safety. And as sometimes the government puts out too many of them, and they don't time them well, and it, there's not a lot of sense, and then we get frustrated. So I can understand that. But I've also seen it when it's done right. And so I would argue that, You can be a conservative, you can be an economic conservative, you can be a national security conservative. All of those things, in my view, would carry you towards seeing the Jones Act as a positive element in America's system of protecting itself and making sure that it is not reliant or essentially disadvantaged because of foolishness.
0: I think that is a terrific place in which to end. George, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I know I've learned a lot and our listeners have as well. Uh, That is it for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast. If you want to learn more about the work that the men and women of the American maritime industry do to support the U.S. economy and homeland and national security, please check out AmericanMaritimePartnership.com and please share this podcast with others who would benefit from learning more. I'm Jennifer Carpenter, signing off.